0: Who's excited for a vacation this summer? Summer and I are looking forward to one. We've got one planned. But I know it's it's tough when we just work, 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 and then don't get any time off. How many people have had a week off of work in the last year? You can raise your hand. There you go. Retirement counts. That counts. Very good. Well, what we're looking at this morning is basically a vacation for eternity, and that is what I'm looking forward to. And just like a vacation can kind of help get us through the rest of the work week, this vacation is helping us get through the rest of our lives and to live our lives effectively and with a purpose. This is where we're going, and this is what we're looking forward to. Let's open our Bibles up to Revelation chapter 21. This week, we are going to be focusing on what I'm calling the eternal state. This is the eternal state of affairs for the rest of forever with God. And next week, we'll be focusing on the eternal place, which is the New Jerusalem. Some of it overlaps, and we'll look at some of New Jerusalem today, but there is this description in the second half of chapter 21 that we'll look at more in depth next week. We're going to get through verse 8 this morning, so let's go ahead and read through Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1 through 8. This is John speaking. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A lot of really great stuff in those eight verses, and then one very sobering warning at the end. Verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea you don't know what eyeballs were made for until you get to this place this new heaven and new earth we only see the shadows you know this creation as it were is just the shadow of what's to come in this new creation. And there's a lot of good things about this place. Possibly one of the better things is that we don't have to fight with our spouses. First of all, we won't have spouses. We won't have to fight with our spouses over the thermostat because Jesus keeps the thermostat and it's going to be perfect all the time. And that's a joke and it's okay to laugh. <laughs> This is going to be our home. This earth is not our home right now. We weren't made for this fallen state that we are currently in, but we were made for eternity in perfection with Jesus Christ. And sadly, people try to accumulate things in this life that will satisfy them. But we weren't built for this. So, Nothing here can actually satisfy what we're longing for. You know, I got a little choked up last week when I started talking about this and how Abraham was looking for this city. You can find that in Hebrews. He was searching for a place that satisfied. He left his home without knowing where he was going. God just said, went. God just said, go, so he went. And this is the place that he was ultimately searching for, this new Jerusalem, the new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In Revelation 20, verse 11, John said that the earth and heaven fled away from the face of God. And this isn't a renovation. This is a recreation. He's not just buffing the walls and you know shining things up a bit. This is everything is passing away. And behold, all things have become new. It is a recreation. We hear Christians say more than we probably should. If I could have just seen Jesus cleanse the leper. If I could have just seen him heal the paralytic. Or turn water into wine. Feed the 5,000. If I could have just seen that, how amazing that would have been. But look, it's not like we're all getting ripped off. You'll actually get to witness those things, I believe, in the millennium. And that will be a sight to behold. If you're a believer living today, you will live through the millennium, no matter which way you slice it. John also said, there is no more sea in this new earth. And I'm sure that this is something John would have taken quite keen notice of, the sea. Because where he was sitting on Patmos, he was surrounded by sea. It was this island. So he noticed, hey, there's no more sea. It's all land. Now there is water. There's freshwater sources. And we have a river described later, but no sea. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When he says, then I, John, it's like he's very humbly saying and little old me sitting out here on this little island, saw the holy city. Insignificant me saw this very significant event and place that's the future of God's people. It's like he can't believe that God would reveal this to him. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God. This city is seen by John descending from heaven. And he says, coming down out of heaven from God. This city is from God. That is, its source is God. It's a new creation, and this seems to be the place that Jesus said he was preparing for his disciples, and he says in John 14.2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And that next little exchange in John 14 clarifies how you get to this place. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? You know, if we don't even know where you're going, how can we know how to get there? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no way to enter into this eternal state, into this new Jerusalem without Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the way. John says that this city was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, have you ever seen a bride who doesn't really care what she looks like on her wedding day? Of course not. I don't think in the history of brides there has ever been one like that. Not only is this city prepared, it's beautiful. It's adorned. There is something about it that is breathtaking, that's very specifically prepared and adorned for God. A bride isn't going to say, well, this dress is pretty functional, so I'll take it. She wants it to be perfect because she wants to be adorned for her wedding day. This city is not just functional, though it is functional, it's also beautifully adorned and that description of it is consistent with the picture that we get in the second half of this chapter it's an opulent place all of the things that we think are so precious on earth gold you know precious stones they're the foundations of this city they're the walls of this city they're in such abundance here there is such Beauty. Its very foundation is laid on these precious stones. The gates and the walls are made of precious materials. It's adorned. And of course, the bride is not just the city infrastructure. It's really the inhabitants of the city that make her what she is. Prepared. That word prepared is the same Greek word that Jesus used in John 14.2 when he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. John now says that this city is prepared using the same word. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. It's not really said whose voice this is. We could think it's God's voice, but it could also be the voice of an angel. It just says that it was a loud voice and that it was from heaven. So many things would fit that description. It said, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So at this point, entering eternity, when all is right, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's where it belongs. And this reads a little different in the Greek. And I'll use the Weist expanded translation to help get this point across. And that translation renders this phrase, the tabernacle of God is with men, as the tent of God, the glorified body of the Lord Jesus in which he lives, is with men. Wow. The tent of God, the glorified body of the Lord Jesus in which he lives, is with men. So you're telling me that the glorified body of Christ is the tabernacle of God? That's what it seems. The glorified body of Christ is the tabernacle of God. But doesn't that make sense? Because we've seen shadows of this throughout the scripture. Back in Leviticus 26.11, the Lord says to his people Israel, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you i will walk among you and be your god and you shall be my people this voice from the heavens in revelation is echoing that same promise that was made thousands of years ago zechariah 2:10 and 11 sing and rejoice o daughter of zion for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. A little later in Colossians 2, nine, For in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And even the prophetic name of Christ, Emmanuel, means God with us. The Apostle John, the same author of Revelation, wrote the Gospel of John. And in the opening of his gospel, in John 1.14, he wrote, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word John chose to use for dwell in that verse is not the typical word that would be used. Usually it would be katoikeo, and we see that in several of the other passages I just read through. The word John chose to use is skinoo. It's very similar to the word tabernacle in the Greek, which is skene. So we have this root word that produces both of these words, one for dwell, one for tabernacle. The words are very similar A tabernacle is just a temporary dwelling place for someone. In the days of his incarnation, God temporarily tabernacled or dwelt among men, and then he returned to heaven. But this day is coming when, in the eternal state, he will set up his dwelling place on the new earth, and he will tabernacle here forever. And what a glorious day that will be when we get to walk among the risen Christ. Verse 22 of Revelation 21, That's that'll be next week. John says that there was no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Christ is both the tabernacle and the temple. He is the sacrifice and the one Who made the sacrifice? He is the Lamb of God, and he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the reconciler and the warrior. You gotta get to know him, because he is the way. He's your ticket into this new place. You gotta know him, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So at this time, everything is as God wants it to be. That's important. Everything is as God wants it to be. And he is with you. This is the heart of God, to be with you. It's remarkable for me to think that God wants to dwell with me because I am nothing special. In fact, I may be special, but it might be in a bad way. It is remarkable that in this place where everything is as God wants it, he wants to be with us. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What will it be like when God himself reaches out and touches your face to wipe away your tears? Wiping away every tear from your eyes. But what are the tears for if there's no death or sorrow or crying? You know, presumably we'll be in this new creation when God wipes away our tears. And in this new creation, no death, no sorrow, no crying, I would suggest that these tears are not. Tears of sorrow. You know those times when you're reading the Bible? You're just alone with God and something just hits you hard. You start to tear up, but not because you're sad. Maybe because you can feel his presence or because he's speaking to you in a special way through that text. And maybe these tears are just from feeling overwhelmed with the beauty of this new place. If you've traveled the world, sometimes you'll come across a place that just takes your breath away. It's so beautiful that it brings tears to your eyes, literally. The natural beauty of this place may even bring us to tears. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. You remember at the end of chapter 20, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So death is no more in this new creation. Death has been swallowed up in victory, as the scripture tells us. This is how God intended it to be in the first place. Unmarred by sin, and by death. Death is completely put away. And I want you to pay attention to this. God did not create Adam and Eve with the capacity to deal with death and loss. Death was not his intention. Adam and Eve brought death into the world when they sinned but they weren't made to deal with it. That's why it is so incredibly hard for us to deal with death today. You'll hear people refer to death as being natural. Like, it's just the natural process. It's just what happens. Even last night, um, there was a line in a movie that said, Oh, death is just natural. And I jumped up and said, Summer, I'm talking about that tomorrow. (laughs) That's not true. Death is not natural. I mean, I guess it's fair to say that it's natural in a fallen world. But it's not natural in the sense that God made it. You know, he didn't create his creation to die. He created his creation to live. Death is anything but natural, and we don't have a a mental file for it. There's no file that we can open up in our mind and put death. It it is not natural to us. But the natural reaction to death is sorrow. When we experience the death of a loved one, or even someone we would just consider an acquaintance, there can be quite a drawn out grieving process that we have to work through. And we have to work through that to come to terms with that loss. And that grief is going to look different as you move through that process. But please hear me when I tell you that it's okay to take time when you're grieving. It's okay. Nobody's rushing you through this process. There's no due date on getting over it. You take your time and you work through it because it's not natural. It feels like our little congregation has really been hit hard lately. Having to deal with a lot of loss. And my heart just really goes out to you. Because I've seen the effects of grief, and I know that it can seem like there's no end to it. But there is. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And this isn't even a temporary state. It's not a one-week vacation. This is for the rest of eternity. There will be no more death, no sorrow, No crying. You run out of tears sometimes, don't you? But not here. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, this is not a renovation. It's a recreation. All that once was marred by sin has passed away. It's been completely done away with, and it's been replaced by this new creation. Even our physical bodies that we inhabited for a short while on this earth will pass away. Peter called his body a tent or a tabernacle. In 2 Peter one thirteen through 15, He writes, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. A little note there that's in reference to the Mount of Transfiguration event, when Christ put off his physical body and showed Peter, James, and John his glorified state. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he's talking about his own death in terms of putting off his physical body, his tent. And that's really all these things are. They're tents for us. You see, Peter understood that his body was just a temporary dwelling. He knew that he was nearing his end on earth, and he would shed the limitations of this present body. But our body is not the only thing that's made new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. Paul is talking about our rebirth when we place our faith in Christ. We are born again, as Jesus himself puts it. We don't even have to wait for this rebirth. This happens when you come to Jesus in faith. This part isn't over a thousand years away. This is right here and right now for you if you have not yet accepted Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that two groups of people receive their resurrection bodies at the rapture those who have died in Christ and those believers who are alive and remain. Verse 14 in 1 Thessalonians 4 reads For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, all of those during the church age, after Christ, um, after Christ was incarnated, they will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, that's harpazo, the rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. That's the beginning of eternity for believers. You and I, that's the beginning of eternity. And after that will come the millennium. We'll come back to the earth with Christ And then the eternal state, what we're talking about this morning, we will usher into that. So this means that the church-age saints, that is you and me, will enter the millennium in our new bodies, our resurrected bodies. Those thousand years will be very different than any other period of history for many reasons, but there will be those who enter the millennium in their earthly bodies who survived the tribulation there will be those who enter the millennium in their resurrected bodies those 144,000 Jews the sealed servants and possibly a handful of Gentile believers who escaped the beast will enter into the millennium from the tribulation having survived those seven years, and they will be in their corporeal, their earthly bodies. It's notable that no unbelievers enter into the millennium. Some will be born during the millennium who don't come to a saving faith in Christ, but no one but believers enter into that time period. At the rapture, all church-age saints will be resurrected and given new bodies. First, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and second, those who are alive and remain. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected sometime after the tribulation, probably towards the beginning of the millennium. And that would probably happen around the time that Christ is literally setting up his kingdom. And those martyred during the tribulation will be resurrected to rule with Christ toward the beginning of the millennium. You can see Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 for a refresher on that. These three groups, the Old Testament saints, church age saints, and tribulation saints, make up the redeemed of history. And these groups are the partakers of the first resurrection that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Now, I kind of took us back to the millennium for a second, but we're going to come back into chapter 21 to this eternal state. Verse 5 Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, that is, pay attention to this, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now we know who this is talking, because he says, He who sat on the throne said, there's only one that sits on the throne, Behold, I make all things new. This is the voice of God now. And he makes all things new. Apparently, he'll even make new our capability for language. We'll all speak the same language in this new Jerusalem. Zephaniah three eight sets the stage for the verse that comes after it. Let's look at verse eight first. Zephaniah three eight. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation. All my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So After the earth is devoured, which sounds an awful lot like passing away of the earth, comes verse 9. Verse 9, For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. I think that'll be pretty cool. All the servants of the Lord speaking the same language. We're all unified in that way. We'll be able to talk with believers from all ages, from all walks of life, from all over the world. Now, I don't know exactly how much of our lives we'll be able to remember. Um, According to the scripture, it doesn't seem like we'll remember much from the previous way things were. And to be quite honest, I'm all right with that. I think we'll just be so enraptured with what's happening around us, I don't think there will be much concern for the past anyways. And it's not just that everything will be made new, but everything will stay new. There's no wearing out of things. The entropy law will be repealed at this time and order will reign over chaos. And entropy is just the lack of order. When entropy increases, order decreases. Today, if you go to Saddle Rags in Stephenville and you buy a nice pair of boots, you consider them your dress boots, you walk out of the store in them immediately they start becoming less and less new. And you wear them around for a year, you know, just on nice occasions, maybe Sundays to church. And then after maybe a year or so, they become your everyday wearers, you know, your boots that you just throw on in the mornings. And then you wear them for another year, and you're having to replace the sole on them. You're having to get work done on them to, to keep them up they just wear out. But if entropy was no longer in effect, if chaos did not reign right now, your boots would stay brand new no matter how long you had them because they wouldn't wear out. And this is a silly example, of course, but I think that you get the point I'm trying to make. This creation stays a new creation. It never wears out. And it never gets old. This also means that your resurrection body will stay new. And I know that that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know, I'm not even 30, and I'm starting to feel some aches and pains. And I know you can laugh at me. That's okay. You know? But we feel this entropy. We feel things going downhill We feel ourselves getting older. There's this idea that in this eternal state, we'll all be about 30 years old perpetually. And I want to be clear that this is not explicitly taught in Scripture, but there are some things in Scripture that I would consider circumstantial evidence that kind of point to this being the case. Adam and Eve were created as physically matured adults who were capable of procreating, and they were commanded to do so. They were commanded to multiply and fill the earth. Had sin not entered into the world, they would have presumably remained around that fertile age um, and probably about 30 And they would have probably watched their children grow up to around 30 and then stopped maturing. They would have stayed there if sin had not entered the world. Now, also, those who were to serve as priests in the tabernacle had to be 30 years old or older. You can find that in Numbers 4.3. Joseph was about thirty when he was made to rule over Egypt. You can find that in Genesis forty-one forty three. David became king over Israel at age thirty, second Samuel five four. And Jesus was thirty when he began his public ministry. That's in Luke three twenty-three. Since those who will be resurrected, that is you and I are also to serve as kings and priests in the millennium. It seems that their resurrection age would be around this same 30-year mark. And again, this is highly speculative. Uh, We don't know this, but it's something interesting to consider. And I know to many of you, 30 sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Not too bad. And he said to me, verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. I'm sure at this point, John has just kind of short-circuited. He's just seeing all of these things unfold before him. He's being shown all of these visions into the future, and he's just fried. I mean, he was just shown the city of God descending onto the earth, and I bet he's mesmerized. So it seems that God here has to remind him to write down what he's hearing, (laughs) what he's seeing. He's like, make sure you got this down right it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. What beautiful words to hear from the mouth of God Almighty! It is done. Just as the work of creation was finished in Genesis two one through three, and the work of redemption was finished in John nineteen thirty. Now, the work of consummation and restoration has been finished. The plan of God has been fulfilled, and He's dwelling with you. That's the plan. He says, "I am the alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end." This is the same identifier that's used in Revelation 1, verse 8 and verse 11, and Revelation 22:13. All of creation flows from him, through him, and to him. He was there at the beginning, and he will be there at the end. He says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. John recorded that conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And a little bit later, Jesus also said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You'll find that in John 7. We get a key piece of insight from that last passage. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit when he talked about this water. The Spirit is a picture of water. In other words, The water is a type of the Spirit. And he doubles down on this promise of living water here in Revelation. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. We'll see this theme of water continue through the end of the book of Revelation. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. You remember that phrase, he who overcomes? Long time ago, when we were going through chapters two and three. In those letters to the churches, Jesus made promises to the overcomers. He who overcomes, now he says, shall inherit all things. This is a remarkable promise. Of inheritance. Now, this is the final promise to the overcomers. And it includes all of the other promises and more. This is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a promise is this? Along with our positions as sons of God comes the position of heir. Those two are linked. Romans 8, 16 and 17 tells us that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And the only reason that we will inherit all things is because Christ is the heir of all things, as seen in Hebrews 1-2. Hebrews 1-2 says, Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Since we are joint heirs with him, we are heirs of all things with him. But, but, That word marks a contrast. There's a contrast between the glorious inheritance of the saints and the inheritance of the unbelievers who have their inheritance in the lake of fire. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I know what you're probably thinking. Ooh, I made it out of that one. None of those apply to me. But then you remember that murder includes anger, and sexual immorality includes lustful thoughts, and idolatry includes covetousness, that's just a love for material things. And I know everyone has not been 100% truthful 100% of the time. And then you realize that things aren't looking too good for us. But there is good news. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church addressing some issues that had popped up there. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11... through He writes to them, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is good news for all of us. Because at some point, every single one of us in this room, including myself, would fit in one of the categories in verse 8 that do not have part in the city of God, but have their part in the lake of fire. We all would have related to one of those categories at least. My favorite word in that passage from 1 Corinthians that I just read is the word but, marking a contrast between that list of sins and the sinners attached to them, marking a contrast between that and washed, sanctified, and justified. They were sinners of all sorts, but they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, when we are washed, sanctified, and justified, we are made a new creation in Christ. That means that the old things, those sins that we used to hang so tightly to, have passed away. And all things have become new. That means that we are no longer identified by our sins, but we are identified with Christ. That makes all the difference in the world. As we read through this list of sins in verse 8 of chapter 21 in Revelation, some of these descriptors might stand out to us as much worse than the others. That's our first reaction. Then our reaction is, well, no, all sins are the same. And then we look at it closer and we realize, no, there is one that's worse than all the others. Look at this list. See if you can pick it out. There is one sin in here that is worse than all of the others, scripturally. Every sin in this list can be forgiven except for one, unbelief, unbelieving. The cowardly, that is the fearful. God's given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and a sound mind. We're not to be fearful. Unbelieving, that's the big one. There is only one reason that anyone ever in the course of human history will be consigned to the lake of fire. Only one reason. Because of their rejection of Christ. Their unbelief. There's no other reason that anyone else will be in the lake of fire. Unbelieving. That is the unpardonable sin. Cowardly, unbelieving, abominable. Abominable is kind of a strange word translated, but it has to do with idolatry. Murderers, sexually immoral, and the King James is translated whoremongers. It's anything that has to do with sex outside of marriage. Sorcerers, pharmakia, you know, we've talked about that word. The use of drugs, hallucinogens, altered states of consciousness to access other kinds of false spiritual experiences, that's sorcery, idolaters, putting anything in the place of God, worshiping anything as God with your time, your money, or your attention, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, we've talked about this lake of fire plenty in the last few weeks. The second death, that is this separation of you from God for eternity. As believers, we don't have to suffer the second death. Jesus has paid the price for us, but these people who continue to identify with their sin and not with Christ, that is their inheritance. You see the very stark contrast here. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the inheritance of these folks, is in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. You can have it all, or you can have none of it, and that is completely up to you. It's the easiest choice ever. You know, do you want a Rolls Royce, or do you want a broken down Camry? It's an easy choice. You just have to make it. You've got to make that choice. There is no other reason for anyone to be in the lake of fire except through unbelief. As we go into this coming week, I want you to think about this new place, this new creation. Because it will help you get through the week, I promise. This is the never-ending vacation that we get to go on. And better than our vacations here, God is there with us. That is the best part of this whole picture. We get to spend eternity with our Creator. How cool is that? I also want to make you aware of something that I'm going to be putting out for you. It's just a resource and study guide. Through revelation, So it's just a PDF document, but it's got some resources that I've used to prepare these messages, and I'm going to make that available to you electronically in the coming weeks. I'll have that posted and let you know how to get a hold of that. But if you want to study deeper into something that we've talked about, it's likely that that sort of a resource will be included in this study guide. So be on the lookout for that. For now, let's close our study in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.